This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It was a perfect day in 1000 BCE. The sun shone on the prehistoric Ohio Valley. A young boy ran past a few oval-shaped dwellings arranged in no particular order along a bank of lakes. The homes were flimsy structures, easily thrown up and just as easily dismantled. This made it simple to relocate if food ran out. The boy kept running until he reached his house, where he found his mother crouching over an earthen oven. Beside her lay Goosefoot, a rank-smelling, weedy plant, picked fresh from her garden. Nearby, his father sharpened his arrowheads. The young boy looked into the distance at an earthen mound, 20 feet high. He knew that one day his bones would rest there, alongside his mother's and father's. But he didn't know that centuries later, the contents of the mounds would be the only record left of his people. How could an entire culture disappear, almost without a trace? Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This week, we're taking a special one-part look at the Mound Builders. These were ancient cultures who built hundreds of thousands of sophisticated earthen structures called mounds in what is now the eastern United States. 
Their land stretched from Maine to Florida, the Atlantic coast to the Mississippi River. But after 1500 CE, they disappeared forever. Today, we'll explore how these mounds were constructed, what they were used for, and how that changed over the course of hundreds of years. Then, we'll explore theories about what happened to the mound builders. Were they killed off by disease, erased by war, victims of starvation, or did they simply disappear off the face of the planet? Humans first settled in North America during the Archaic period, from roughly 8,000 to 1,000 BCE. At this time, heavy forests blanketed the land. Humans lived in small bands of only a few dozen people. The first mound builders were hunter-gatherers. The women would wake in the morning to gather edible plants and nuts like hickory and acorns. The men hunted white-tailed deer, rabbits, squirrels, and raccoons with tools they chipped from stone. They lived off what the land supplied, and upon death, they were buried in that same earth. The earliest North American mounds were a way for ancient people to honor their ancestors and create a place to visit with the deceased. One of the biggest and most elaborate mounds was constructed during the Archaic period the Watson Brake Mound Complex in northern Louisiana. It's one of the most ancient human-created structures that still exists today, predating the Egyptian pyramids and the British Stonehenge. If someone were to stumble upon this unusual structure, it might be mistaken for a natural hill. But upon a closer look, the visitor would see 11 mounds in all, connected by a low ridge about waist-high. Together, they form an oval about 900 feet in diameter. Ten of the mounds are between three and a half to 15 feet high, but the 11th is an outstanding 25 feet tall. Most impressively, these mounds were built by humans alone through sheer physical labor with almost no tools. Wheels and wagons didn't yet exist. Animals were used for food, not work. The simplest machines were still centuries away. Archaeologists believe the mound builders carried soil, clay, and rocks in baskets to dump on the mound site. This was repeated over and over, and the dunes grew over the course of centuries. We don't know how quickly the mounds were erected, did people work long hours steadily for months or years to create these earthen miracles? Or did they only build the mounds during certain seasons when the ground was soft? Adding to the mystery, the mounds varied wildly in size and shape. Some were no taller than a person. Others were 69 feet high, like the Grave Creek Mound in West Virginia. They could hold a single skeleton, like the one unearthed three miles east of Portsmouth, Ohio, or they might contain the bones of hundreds, like the Edwin Harness structure also in Ohio. Burial rituals varied equally from person to person. In the middle to late archaic sites, infants were interred with few to no artifacts. Atolotl weights, used to improve the stability and accuracy of Native American projectile weapons, were commonly found with adult males. And those over 45 had fewer items than young adults. Evidence suggests that people with disabilities were buried in debris, not in mounds. 
This paints a clear picture that during this time, a person's value was determined by their strength and their contributions to society. Those who were too old, young, or sick to serve the community went to the grave with less. But these burial practices started to change around 1000 BCE, which marked a new phase in North American cultural development, the woodland period. Although people still hunted, fished, and foraged for nuts and berries, they also supplemented this traditional hunter-gatherer diet with new innovations, including personal gardens. They used pottery to cook seeds into a thick porridge and soon began to farm those seeds. By the late woodland period, nearly 2,000 years later, maize farming spread from the Atlantic Ocean to the Mississippi River. Women worked the land, doing more physical labor than ever before. Stone hoes were created to weed larger gardens. Now working much larger farms, the ancient people became more stationary and organized. The population increased. More babies meant more mouths to feed. Hunting and gathering resources grew more scarce. Cultivated crops became more important than ever. And by the end of the first millennium, the land seemed full. Territories were claimed, fruitful areas were occupied, and people were defending their piece of the land with force. The smaller villages were vulnerable, so they sought out safety in numbers and consolidated into large towns or cities. The mound builders created political and military councils. Advisors were appointed to lead these groups, which resulted in a new hierarchy. This was reflected in the next wave of mounds. In the later woodland period, it seems that social class determined the caliber of burials. Commoners were often buried side by side on their backs, but chiefs were laid to rest in chambers with raised roofs, draped in precious beads, and surrounded by artifacts like pipes, freshwater beads, and polished pieces of bone or precious metals. Some were covered with blocks of sod, others clay, but the majority with soil. Class wasn't the only social signifier. Gender also played a role in burials. It's believed that the Adena Mounds in Ohio only contained deceased young men. Based on this, it appears that women and children and the elderly weren't valued by the Adena area society. But Seep Mound 1, also in Ohio, contained equal numbers of women and men, and mounds in the lower Illinois Valley contained a large number of men and only a few women. The variations prove that each tribe organized differently, sometimes valuing unexpected traits. For example, the men buried at Gibson, a mound in lower Illinois, were much taller than the others in the simple graves nearby. It's possible that in this society, a commanding height was equivalent to strong social standing. There are more than bones to speculate on. Relics found in the burial mounds revealed that trade skyrocketed during the woodland period. Silver from Ontario, galena from Missouri, alligator teeth from the lower Mississippi Valley, and seashells from the South Atlantic were all found in the mounds in Ohio. It's clear different societies were interacting with each other, traveling long distances for trade. Inside other Ohio mounds, 
archaeologists recovered copious amounts of fancy jewelry made from copper, obsidian, and shimmering mica. Interestingly, the grandeur and ceremony were seemingly limited to burials. Based on the existing evidence, they lived simple lives that ended with extraordinary funerals. Perhaps burials were the most important aspect of many people's legacies. They are, after all, the only record these people left behind. The importance of burials at the time potentially meant that rivals openly competed when building mounds to boost their influence and to gain respect. Families would perhaps elicit the help of kin and host social gatherings to attract volunteers from the community. A large workforce was necessary to build the Woodland Period's standard conical mounds, named for their round dome shapes. In addition to housing the dead, they stood as a landmark, often visible from anywhere in the village. One of the Adena mounds in Ohio was assembled with dark sand on an existing hill so that it could be seen from far away. Such striking edifices required massive amounts of time, planning, and resources. Construction sometimes began with the cremation of the deceased. The ashes, or body, was then placed in a circular or rectangular structure made of logs. Next, heaps and heaps of soil were poured over the top to entomb the structure completely. Some of the most impressive crypts were lined with logs and had earth packed on all sides. Many took decades to complete, with multiple breaks during construction. Occasionally, new graves were added. They went directly on top and were also capped with soil. Over time, the old structures would settle and the soil or wooden roofs would collapse, creating noticeable dips. They were filled with more tombs or packed with dirt. When a mound was complete, the top was hardly ever even. This period was also known for the construction of low, oddly-shaped mounds called effigy mounds, or earthworks. They were shorter than more traditional mounds, but were often very long or wide and depicted certain shapes when viewed from above. They were sprinkled across Wisconsin, Illinois, Iowa, Kentucky, and Minnesota. No one knows how long it took to build an earthwork, but archaeologists believe that the mound builders began by digging trenches in the shape of the finished mound. Then they would layer the dugout earth, ash, and baskets of soil from far away until the structure was several feet tall. When viewed from above, effigy mounds were shaped like animals, including birds, bears, panthers, and lizards. They were only a couple of feet tall, but could span acres of land. The most famous is the Serpent Mound in Ohio. True to its name, this three-foot-high mound snakes down a narrow ridge and is over 1,300 feet long. From above, the mound resembles a green garden snake with a tightly coiled tail. An oval embankment sits at its mouth like an egg. Other effigy mounds were formed into circles or squares, like Mount Horeb in Kentucky. The heart of this earthwork is a circular platform, roughly 100 feet in diameter. It's surrounded by a shallow ditch, similar to a moat, and a low embankment that forms a short wall. 
The structure can be compared to a medieval castle with its interior buried in the earth. Unlike a castle, Mount Horeb and the Serpent were not designed for defense. Excavators found no evidence of warfare, like excessive bones or weapons, near these mounds. Though they did find clay platforms, ash, and bones, suggesting rituals involving fire or cremations took place at these sites. These practices might have been to thank the gods or to pray for help. Perhaps the mound builders performed ceremonies for fertility or healing. Or maybe the rituals were more macabre. Many historians believe that burial mounds were the site of ritual murder and human sacrifice. Up next, we'll explore the last mound builder period in which they killed their people to appease the gods before they disappeared with hardly a trace. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Thank you so much for listening. We want to take this time to tell you that Unexplained Mysteries will be taking the next two weeks off. We'll be back with a brand new episode on January 9th. In the meantime, we do have a special gift to share with you. While we're away, we'll be airing our listeners' most requested episodes of 2019. If you'd like to check out the most requested episodes from ParCast's other shows, subscribe to ParCast Presents to hear our best of 2019. From everyone here at ParCast, we'd like to wish you a happy holiday season. We're thankful for your support and look forward to bringing you even more unique and entertaining podcasts in the new year. Thanks for listening. Now, back to the story. Beginning around 8000 BCE, the various Native American cultures called mound builders buried their dead in elaborate earthen structures that could be hundreds of feet tall. This practice continued through the end of the woodland period in roughly 1000 CE. The final mound builder period, the Mississippian period, lasted from about 800 to 1600 CE. During this time, societies with large populations operated under formal governments called chiefdoms. Cahokia, the largest city during the Mississippian period, contained anywhere from 6,000 to 30,000 inhabitants. For comparison, its population may have exceeded London's at the time. Some of Cahokia's most striking features are the hundreds of elaborate burial mounds built during this time period. The city is also home to the largest mounds built in the United States, including the Monk's Mound, a whopping 1,000 feet long, 700 feet wide, and 100 feet high. These massive structures were commonly flat-topped, and homes for the chiefs, sweat lodges, and religious temples were built right on top of the burial mounds. It was a constant literal reminder 
of who was in high social standing. But mounds were more than tombs and the foundations for buildings. They may have also hosted religious rituals, including ritual killings. Mound 72 at Cahokia is well known because it contained the remains of sacrificed victims. One main cadaver was interred with great honor on a bed of seashells. He was surrounded by skeletons and partial skeletons, some of them bearing the tools of service. Today, archaeologists believe that these servant bodies belong to people who were sacrificed to accompany a high-status individual to the afterlife. The five rectangular pits at Mound 72 each held the bones of 19 to 53 people, both men and women. Some bodies were missing heads and hands, while other pits held piles and piles of bones. Human sacrifices weren't exclusive to Cahokia. Four bodies were uncovered at the Dixon Mounds in Illinois without their heads. Instead, pots were buried atop their necks. It appeared adults and children were ritualistically killed upon the death of their chiefs and kin. French ethnographer Antoine Simone Lepage du Prats witnessed such a rite firsthand. He studied the Natchez tribe during the 18th century and befriended one of the last surviving mound builders, a war chief named Tattooed Serpent of the Grand Village in present-day Mississippi. Lepage du Prats was at Tattooed Serpent's home when the chief passed away. When his body went cold, Tattooed Serpent's brother, the Great Sun, pronounced him dead. The Great Sun signaled to his wife to extinguish their fire, and his chancellor walked out of the cabin, wailing loudly in sorrow. The other villagers began to cry out in pain. The grief of the people of the Sun echoed across the land. Their grief was so strong, as many as 30 people volunteered to die. Lepage du Prats managed to convince the Great Sun not to sacrifice himself. But at least 10 people followed Tattooed Serpent to the grave, including his two wives, Pipebearer and Doctor. They were strangled with rawhide cord during Tattooed Serpent's burial ceremony. Human sacrifice was a large part of the Mississippian culture. But the story of Tattooed Serpent is one of the last documented accounts. When European invaders swept through the land, they wiped out the people and their practices. As colonists settled North America during the 18th century, they didn't understand what the mounds were. They plowed many down to even out the earth for farming. Finding beautiful buried jewelry while planting crops surprised the settlers. These accidental discoveries led Europeans to tunnel into the mounds in search of treasure. They owned the land, so whatever they found, they kept. Ancient artifacts became trinkets in their homes or were sold. Sadly, many of the excavations were crude, done without training. Nothing short of grave robbing. Many artifacts were lost. If they didn't please the eyes of Englishmen, they were tossed back into the earth or even thrown away. In the 18th century, the third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, took a different approach. 
He sought to understand the history associated with the buried bones and to learn the stories of the people who'd built the mounds. So Jefferson conducted an excavation at his Virginia home. He and his slaves dug trenches into a mound. It's said that they removed a thousand bodies. After comparing them, he concluded that the structure contained the remains of people buried at different times. But he wasn't sure who those people were, and he wasn't willing to consider they were Native Americans. In fact, European settlers and their descendants didn't believe that the local people had anything to do with the ancient mounds or the stunning artifacts within. They believed the indigenous people were less developed than themselves and couldn't have built these sophisticated works of art. The tools, jewelry, pottery, and weapons from the mounds were unlike anything they'd seen indigenous people use, and the settlers refused to accept that the mounds had once been part of the indigenous cultures. Some, like Thomas Jefferson, believed that Asian settlers had created the mounds shortly after traveling across the Bering Strait. Others thought the mounds were created by the lost people of Atlantis. The mounds were said to have been created by a lost Welsh tribe, the ten lost tribes of Israel, and the Mayans from South America. When those hypotheses didn't pan out, some Americans proposed the mounds were natural geological features created through unusual erosion. Literally, any story was considered except for the fact that the mounds were created by the indigenous people of the United States. Furthermore, the European settlers assumed that Native Americans hadn't occupied the land very long. In the 1500s and 1600s, the indigenous people's population was in severe decline. It was unthinkable to the colonizers that a dying people could have a proud ancient heritage. If they built these mounds and inhabited these lands so long ago, where was their government? Where were their cities? Where was their history? And most importantly, where were their people? In the late 1870s, Cyrus Thomas of the Smithsonian Institution and Frederick Ward Putnam of the Peabody Museum tried to answer exactly that question. They studied the bones pulled from mounds and reviewed accounts of the earliest settlers who made contact with indigenous American tribes. Putnam studied several complexes, including the mounds in Virginia. He also studied writings from early travelers, he found that the habits of the mound builders corresponded with the Cherokee culture. And the artifacts in the mounds corresponded to many of the indigenous practices observed by America's first European settlers. Ultimately, Putnam reported that there was no physical difference between the people buried in the mounds and modern Native Americans. Unfortunately, his studies did little to stop the plundering of indigenous gravesites. At the start of the 20th century, a group called the Pecola Mining Company excavated a large mound in Oklahoma. They uncovered impressive engraved marine shell cups and sold them at a huge profit. This gained media attention and led to local outrage. Newspapers admonished the company, and the articles eventually brought an end to grave robbing and began the large-scale preservation of the mounds. 
By the 1920s, 500 Wisconsin mounds were incorporated into city parks and cemeteries for extra protection. However, none of this was done with consideration for the indigenous peoples. Now the question was, how was it that their societies and practices had changed so radically as to be unrecognizable to the archaeologists who first unearthed and classified the mound's contents? Many believe that diseases like smallpox and measles ultimately killed the majority of Native Americans, including the mound builders. Colonists brought over European diseases, and the indigenous people didn't have the antibodies to fight pathogens they'd never been exposed to before. Entire families, entire tribes were lost to disease, and the first to fall were the elders. Elders that carried the history, rituals, and traditions. With their deaths, their wisdom was lost. We'll never know how many Native Americans died of disease, but ethnographer Thomas Harriet wrote in a 1588 report that within a few days after our departure from every such town, the people began to die very fast, and many in short space, in some towns about 20, in some 40, in some 60, and in one six score, which in truth was very many in respect of their numbers. Given how many Native Americans died of European diseases, it's not too hard to believe that this was the fate of the mound builders as well. According to this theory, contagions wiped out the people of Cahokia and other tribes so quickly, nobody remained to recount or remember their final days. Although many lived inland, far from the first colonies, smallpox and measles traveled along trade routes during the 16th and 17th centuries decimating populations before European settlers even arrived in the early 1700s. By the time colonizers reached the Midwest, cities like Cahokia had already become ghost towns, and their traditions and heritage had died with them. The mound builders and their remains were as mysterious to surviving tribes like the Cherokee as they were to the Europeans. But recent findings oppose this theory. New research shows that settlements were spread out across the land with several hundred miles between tribes. Diseases could spread from direct contact with the sick European, but the idea that illness could proliferate across open, empty plains is unlikely. As we discussed earlier, the mound builders had healthy and extensive trade routes. But as infectious disease spread, it's possible that villages would have closed their gates and shunned outsiders. There may have even been tribes who should have remained unexposed due to their isolation. It's hard to believe that an entire continent's worth of people could have unwittingly spread communicable illness without taking any kind of preventative action. This hypothesis also doesn't explain why the Native Americans were more severely impacted than Europeans. After all, the first colonists to arrive in America hadn't been exposed to the local diseases there. While some early explorers did die of American infections like syphilis, those diseases never threatened to wipe out all of European civilization. It's undeniable that the spread of disease played a real role in the decline of Native American culture, but it only seems to tell part of the mound builder's story. 
Perhaps the mound builders were wiped out by threats like warfare or global warming. Understanding these risks can not only illuminate Native American history, but they may also hold the key to humanity's survival today. Up next, we'll dig into what really happened to the mound builders. Now, back to the story. For thousands of years, indigenous people across North America built impressive mounds to honor their dead. The burial sites rivaled the Egyptian pyramids, pointing to an impressive culture. But by 1600 CE, almost all evidence of this civilization had disappeared, except for the mounds. Some scholars theorized the mound builders were decimated by disease, but others think the mound builders met a more brutal end, through warfare. Violent battles had already chipped away at the population for centuries. Tribes fought to secure resource-rich lands to feed their growing clans. Some skirmishes were so brutal, half of the adults in a village would be slaughtered at once. There's also evidence that the mound builders committed ritual human sacrifice to honor the death of a great leader. So even those who survived a battle might have died quickly after if their leader was among the fallen. It only took one or two battles for a community to be wiped out entirely. Some tribes responded to the threat by going on the offense, raiding and killing their neighbors. Others invested in stronger defenses In the 15th century, it was common for coastal plains villages to build protective walls. A drawing recovered in 1590 depicted a small town protected by a ring of sharp-tipped wooden logs. And a similar wall was found around the Fort Ancient complex in Ohio, which included both burial mounds and a village. But a wall can only do so much. The remains at the Fort Ancient site featured arrowheads embedded in numerous skeletons. Some even had multiple arrowheads, as if they'd been shot several times. Even if invaders were kept out, the population could still suffer the effects of war. It was common for adversaries to destroy an enemy's crops before attacking. If the community didn't have enough stores, they'd face starvation and death without a single shot fired. And American tribes didn't only have to fear intertribal warfare. Once the first European settlers arrived, they brought unfamiliar animals like horses and unfamiliar weapons like guns. Mounted armed troops had a clear advantage on the battlefield. The colonial Europeans were also politically savvy. Through careful treaties and alliances, they could pit various tribes against one another, then easily conquer whoever remained after a bloody battle. But this theory can't account for the complete disappearance of the mound builders. If European settlers had wiped out these tribes through calculated warfare, there would have been some record of their conflicts. It's possible the mound builders were killed by other Native Americans before Columbus ever set foot in the New World. But it's hard to imagine what other tribe could have overcome the inhabitants of Cahokia, one of the largest cities on Earth at the time. And that brings us to our third theory, that the mound builders were wiped out by catastrophic events caused by climate change. 
Some historians, such as climatologist Dr. Michael Mann, believe that sudden temperature shifts beginning around 1300 CE brought on long droughts and cruel winters. Poor crops led to starvation and villages disappearing without a trace. And if these challenges followed an epoch of unusual prosperity, it's possible that the people didn't know how to properly prepare for extended, harsh periods of scarcity. Great cities like Cahokia were founded in roughly 1000 CE during an unusually warm period called the Medieval Climatic Anomaly. During this era, people around the world flourished. Reliable crops ensured that people were well-fed. They were more willing to take risks, establishing new trade routes. During this period, the Vikings first landed in Iceland, and the global population roughly doubled. Some evidence suggests that the Western Hemisphere was even warmer than Asia, Europe, and Africa. This meant Native Americans might have had even better conditions than their counterparts across the Atlantic. But then, around 1300 CE, weather patterns across North America shifted, funneling cold air from the bone-dry Arctic down across the modern-day U.S. Increased volcanic activity spewed dust and ash into the air, blocking the sun. It was the start of the Little Ice Age. For about 500 years, the Earth became an average of three degrees Fahrenheit cooler. Rivers and northern oceans froze, cutting off trade routes. Earlier frosts and bitterly cold soil meant that harvests were minuscule. Fishing became nearly impossible thanks to icy water and changing migration patterns for sea animals. There are no written records of this time in the Americas, but we can make some inferences based on what we know of Europe during the Little Ice Age. Faced with deadly climate patterns, the people developed new technologies to survive. England and the Netherlands made great strides in early terraforming strategies, while the French government invested in the study of glaciers. These discoveries helped lay the ground for the Enlightenment and the Renaissance, but the new era of scientific advancement came at the cost of many lives lost due to famine. It's possible that the Little Ice Age caused a dry spell in the Americas, where crops failed, bodies of water dried up, and entire generations lived under the threat of starvation. As we mentioned, during the medieval climatic anomaly, the weather patterns in the Americas were more temperate than the rest of the world. This may have meant the mound builders weren't used to droughts and harsh winters and had a harder time adapting to the Little Ice Age. They would have been left to the mercies of the failing crops, the encroaching ice, and the superstorms that raged across the land. As starvation wiped out communities, their traditions were lost. Ancient legends and stories were forgotten in the struggle to survive. There were no more resources to dedicate to the dead, so there were no more mounds. The main problem with this theory is that it paints the people of Cahokia as helpless. Based on what remains, they were a highly intelligent, advanced culture. Couldn't they have figured out a way to thrive through climatic hardship? Ultimately, it's hard to say how the Little Ice Age impacted the Native Americans, given there are no written records. 
But it's hard to believe that climatic shifts would have devastated them so severely when other cultures met similar challenges and overcame them. So what happened to the mound builders? We think there's some truth to each theory, but no singular answer. It's most likely that a lack of resources caused by climate change led to warfare, and the remaining decimated population fell prey to the abuse of European settlers and their infectious diseases. European settlers refused to consider that indigenous people could have created the impressive mounds, and by the time anyone challenged that racist belief, the cultural memory of the mound builders had died out. We think a perfect combination of pressures wiped out one of the world's largest civilizations. Perhaps if first contact between Europeans and Native Americans had happened a century earlier or later, the mound builders could have survived or even fought off the Europeans. But instead, they disappeared, taking their stories and the truth of what happened with them. Unfortunately, the full tale of the mound builders will forever remain a mystery, buried in time like the bones in the mounds. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. For more information on the Mound Builders, amongst the many sources we used, we found George Milner's book, The Mound Builders, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Unexplained Mysteries, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. See you next Thursday. And remember... Never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Britt Ellis, with writing assistance by Drew Cole, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Just a reminder that we'll be back with a new episode on January 9th. In the meantime, we'll be playing our listeners' most requested episodes of 2019. Thanks again for listening. We hope you have a wonderful holiday season. 